Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I'm here to say this day that I hope your life is flowing in the direction for which you desire. And just know that today is going to be one of those grand days. And don't worry about those people that talk behind your back. They're behind you for a reason. And with that being said, let's slip into darkness. Tell the truth and shame the devil. I had the privilege this past weekend of watching some of the greatest football that I have watched in a long time. And I, for one, love hard-hitting, smash-mouth football. And my congratulations go out to those Cincinnati Bengals, because although I have never really been a Bengal fan, that is my home state, and I am going to be cheering for you. But just like the rest of Americans' historical history, football has its dark side. You see, I I love the Big Ten Conference because I am from Akron, Ohio, and I never went to a segregated school. And you see, when I came out of high school, I could have went to the University of Pennsylvania or Indiana or Michigan because these were Big Ten integrated schools. And I guess I love college football the best because these young boys still play for the love of the game. They have the desire. They are hungry. Whereas NFL players play for the love of the game, but also they are trying to hold on to a paycheck. And I have to give my props out to the University of Alabama because they have a great team. But personally, myself, I do not care for the SEC. The Southeastern Conference is one of the largest conferences in the NCAA. And the University of Alabama sits on the throne of that conference. And this in turn makes me have a love-hate relationship for the state of Alabama because I can remember when a black player could not even walk on the campus of Alabama or Mississippi or Arkansas or Louisiana. These were all teams that were segregated and are all teams that are now in the Southeastern Conference. And my love-hate relationship with Bama goes back to the fact that every time I watch them on television play, I see that their whole team is predominantly black players. And I remember when. I remember when I could not attend the University of Auburn, when I had relatives that lived less than two miles away from the school. And this is the seed of my love-hate relationship with the state. 
Now, I love it because that's where the majority of my family resides. That's where my ancestors are buried. My mom was born there. My father grew up there. So I love it. But I also hate it for the way that it treated my family. I hate it because my family couldn't vote. I hate it because I know I had a lot of my family that worked those mines. I hate it because the state of Alabama did not think that any black person needs to be educated. They were cheap labor. And Jim Crow ran rapid. But you know, nothing stays the same. I can remember the last big family gathering I attended in Alabama. And it was the day of the Iron Bowl when the University of Alabama played Auburn University. And I was at my cousin's house and we were watching the game. And I stood back and looked at the people that were there. The younger generation was there. And half of them went to the University of Auburn, and half of them went to the University of Alabama. And it was a great thing to see them cheering and jeering at each other in pure pleasure competitiveness. And I was proud. And I was also a little bit angry when I looked at my generation of relatives that was there that never had that chance. And I thought about how wrong that was and how they were cheated out of so much. And it also reminded me of what the governor of Alabama, George Wallace, said when he said segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. But that was a lie, my friends. And so many of those state officials back then would turn over in their grave today if they saw Ole Miss take to the field. And let me tell you how it all began. You see, in 1970, the NCAA was just starting to get into televised games, and money was pouring in to those schools. The SEC was not getting any of that money, and they wanted it but they still refused to let a black player step onto their football field. Now, Alabama had a great coach by the name of Bear Bryant who wanted black players, but he had to face that alumni. So what he did in September of 1970 was to invite the University of Southern California to Alabama to play a game. And for many of the white and black fans at Legion Field that day, USC must have seemed like a team from the distant future. Because the team was not merely desegregated, the team was fully integrated. Jimmy Jones was a black man with a towering afro, was USC's quarterback at a time when African-Americans at predominantly white universities rarely played quarterback. But the star of the afternoon was Sam Cunningham, a six-foot-three-inch, 245-pound sophomore fullback who spent the afternoon running up and down the chest of Bryant's defense. Cunningham rushed his way into immortality that afternoon. 
and he would be called the catalyst for integration in the South. The game drove home the point that George Wallace's June 1963 proclamation would be modified to accommodate the great black athlete. The irony of Cunningham's stardom and notoriety is that of all the USC's black players, Cunningham was probably the least wrapped up in the social significance of the game. Unlike many of his teammates who were from the South, Cunningham did not understand the social significance of USC's playing Alabama in Alabama with a team packed with black players. He was raised in an integrated community in Santa Barbara, California, full of blacks, whites, browns, and yellows. He certainly didn't expect to become a cultural lightning rod. To him, it was just a game because he always played with white ball players. He remembered hearing the coaches tell the players not to leave the hotel for fear of what might happen given the racial tension of the moment. It was this kid's very first varsity football game, and he was hyped behind that. During the walkthrough practice the Friday before the game, Cunningham began to understand the significance of the game. There were 5,000 people watching the Trojans practice. In the stands, fans were talking trash. The Bears going to get him some dark meat. While Cunningham battered the Crimson Tide, the speedy Clarence Davis peppered USC with an assortment of darting runs and pass receptions that underlined the Crimson Tide's lack of speed. Alabama may not have needed to get blacker, but it needed to get faster. This USC-Alabama game would be Bear Bryant's last all-white team. Although the game did not cause him to immediately reverse his all-white recruiting philosophy and go out and begin signing every highly black athlete in Alabama, in fact, Brian had already signed Wilbur Jackson in December 1969 out of Ozark, Alabama. You see, Brian was smart, and he knew the only way to make a case for integrating his program was to have his team humiliated by a Trojan team that was heavily laden with black players. The powers that be who had set the game up must have known that something was going to happen. Fortunately, it happened to help the bear get what he needed. In fact, what stung Alabamans more than Cunningham and what escalated the tide of change was the performance of Clarence Davis, the Trojan senior tailback who was born in Alabama. He was born in Bessemer, right outside of Birmingham. His family moved to New York in 1958, then moved to California two years later. Davis was 14 years old in 1963 when a bomb ripped through the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing four girls and stunning the nation. Davis's mother knew the mother of one of the children. 
The public's fascination with his return to Birmingham seven years later, playing for USC, reflected their ambivalence towards black people, which became more troublesome as black athletes became more prominent and more vital to the sport. The particular fascination with Davis reflected the way sports-grazed Southerners were struggling with race. On one hand, they were seeped in the white South's revulsion at the presence of blacks, but on the other, they couldn't suppress their admiration of and need for the black physical presence. It was writ large in the South in 1966, but it's paradigm that continues to define the dilemma of race and racism in sports in the United States. Behind the cheering lurks angry resentment. Now, Clarence's mother was born in Alabama. Her schools were all black. She had to sit in the back of the bus. When Clarence was born, he never rode the bus but one time in his life, back there in the South. He didn't know about this because we moved to New York. She was a housewife in Birmingham. Her husband didn't allow her to work. He was a good provider Mrs. Davis said, we had our difficulties, which I didn't want my children to be involved in. And the USC Alabama game was the second time Clarence Davis had returned to Alabama since he was seven. He'd come back for his father's funeral at the age 16. The people wanted to see him because this was his home and he was playing with SC. The team stayed out in the suburbs. They couldn't come out of their rooms. The food was served in their rooms. The white people were booing them. And all through the game, they were saying terrible things. Some people were hollering things like, nigger, go back to California. Nigger, go back. The black people were happy and excited because of the black players SC had. And knowing someone on the team... It made the blacks feel good. The USC-Alabama game began a chain reaction that escalated the African-American presence in white Southern sports. After the game, one reporter quoted Brian referring to Davis saying that he would never again let a great black athlete leave the state of Alabama. While the civil rights movement challenged the nation to live up to its founding ideals of liberty and justice, the physical ability of both Cunningham and Davis provided pragmatic evidence that African Americans were needed if Alabama and other Southern schools hoped to compete on the national stage. You see, integration in sports as opposed to integration at the ballot box or in public conveniences was a winning proposition for the whites who controlled the sports industrial complex. They could move to exploit black muscle and talent, thus sucking the life out of black institutions while at the same time giving themselves credit for being humanitarians. Integration also exposed white fans to a manner of athleticism and style of play that many had not previously seen. 
It also introduced a type of showmanship that made the college game appealing to audiences for television's expanding sports programming. There was a lot of positive things that attending a prestigious white college and university offered African Americans. There were larger stadiums, larger budgets, outstanding training facilities, and competition on larger stages with access to greater resources. But those opportunities came with a stiff price. Prior to 1970, the oppressive constraints of de facto discrimination imposed a level of solidarity within the black community. Whatever an individual's educational attainments, economic status, or excellent on the athletic field, for example, he or she could never entirely escape the oppressive reality of segregation. Integration would give blacks access to that big stage they craved, but it also gave whites access to the black market, to black wallets and sensibilities, and to black talent. Integration also stopped a growing momentum toward independence within the African-American community. And it stifled a movement within the black community toward empowerment and community building that began as a result of African-Americans, including athletes, being forced out of integrated sports society in the 1880s and 1890s. In the process of integration, there was also a psychic loss in that many African-American athletes became estranged with the communities that produced them. Time, many had virtually no understanding of the struggles that carried African-Americans athletes through sports history. A whole generation of young athletes born after 1970 assumed that the dominant black presence had not evolved, but rather had always existed. Prior to integration, many Southern-born African-American athletes were forced to attend HBCUs that were close to their homes. This created a family-like atmosphere surrounding black schools. They were as much a part of the community as their families themselves. There was an enormous amount of civic pride associated with the football teams at black colleges. In addition to providing a platform for black athletes, sports contests at HBCUs reflected special black cultural patterns that attested to both the strength and the vibrancy of the black community. This was especially apparent when rival teams would play one another. More than mere games, the contests were an opportunity for the entire community to band together and support their team and celebrate themselves. The Morgan Grambling showdowns were prime examples of this element at work. And because the black athletes were close to home, this allowed them to serve as role models for their family as well for the entire community. Networks of relatives remained strong because the family members was always close by. After integration, however, 
black athletes began moving across the country in pursuit of their individual athletic destinies. They often left both their families and extended families behind, as a result became alienated from their communities. Many black athletes no longer felt as if the place where they grew up was home. As the profitability of the sports industry started at the college level increased, the disconnection imposed by white institutions on black athletes became more deliberate and pronounced. They say that Sam Cunningham did more for integration than the civil rights movement. Although almost no one could have predicted the numerous negative ramifications of integration. My friends, I could go on with this subject for days. And if you want to know more, if you want to talk to me one-on-one, you know how to reach me. Big Bo Show at Yahoo.com. It's time for me to get out of here. But before I go, I got a message for you. When you know what you know, there's no need to entertain what they think. Until next time, it's been my honor.